Good evening, everyone, and welcome. I am Pastor Tim Westermeyer, the senior pastor of St. Philip the Deacon, uh, which is privileged to host these Faith and Life Lecture Series events as a community service. We are so glad to have you here tonight. I know we have a little bit of snow in the area, which may have kept a few people at home. So welcome to those of you who braved the elements, and welcome to those of you joining us online. Um, I'll say a bit about our speaker and welcome her, but I, I want to begin just by reminding you, after she gives her 40-45 minute talk, there will be an opportunity for you to ask questions. So if you're here in the house, uh, I'd invite you to come up to one of our two microphones, either here to my right or to my left, uh, and ask them out loud. If you are joining us online, uh, you can submit questions either on the streaming service we're using at the Faith and Life website. There should be a box below the live stream where you can enter a question, or you can also email questions to us in real time at social at spdlc.org social at spdlc.org, uh, and we will try to get through all the questions um, that we receive uh, after the presentation. Uh, I want to always begin by asking, and I'm hoping there are some of you uh, that this applies to who are online, but is anyone here in the house at your first uh, Faith and Life event? Excellent. A few of you. So welcome, special welcome to you. We are so glad you are here. Um, this is the 20th season of these events, so I was chatting with our speaker. Um, she is actually our 99th speaker, which is hard for me to believe. Um, and over the last 99 speakers, we have had people, uh, all of them are Christian, that's sort of the baseline, but they, are, they do all kinds of different things in their uh, professional lives. So we've had academics, historians, scientists, philosophers, poets, nonprofit and uh, for-profit leaders, uh, we've had artists, and we have had more than a few um, authors, which is what we're privileged to have tonight. Our speaker tonight is the founder of something called Black Liturgies. She's also the author of the New York Times best-selling book, This Here Flesh. Um, I don't know if she'll say more about this or what we were discussing, but she's actually working on a second book. I presume that is not a state secret. Um, that will, I'll let her say anything more about that if she'd like. Anyway, um, I always do like to, if you've been at these before, you know that I like to ask our speakers for sort of off the beaten track uh, information about them that people wouldn't find uh, in a typical bio. So I asked her that uh, just in the last hour. She mentioned a couple of things, which I will leave you with before introducing her. Uh, the first is that she's a big fan of puzzles. So she does the New York Times puzzle along with her husband every day. And more than that, the two of them actually create cryptograms for the other to solve almost daily, I think she would say. Um, that's one interesting fact. The other interesting fact, which surprised me a little bit, is that she is a big fan of the show Survivor. So <laughs> she can say more about that if she'd like, uh, but it is my privilege and pleasure to welcome tonight Cole Arthur Riley. Will you join me in welcoming her? Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being in this space with me and with each other. Yes, I am a Survivor fan. Are there any Survivor fans in the audience? Yeah, oh, at least there are a few. I thought no one was going to raise their hand. I was horrified. Uh, it's, I was telling Tim it's a wonderful peek into the heart of America. <laughs> Again, thanks for, for being here and, and being in this, this space 
Um, we're going to talk about embodied spirituality tonight. Uh, what is the spiritual cost of divorcing the mind from the body? And how do we resist a social momentum that's training us, drawing us toward a disembodied life? To begin, I, I want to take you to a scene, one of the most enduring passages of literature in terms of reclaiming my own body, and, and that's the, the clearing. The clearing is a, a scene in Toni Morrison's novel, Beloved. Let's travel into that with me. When warm weather came, Baby Suggs, Baby Suggs is the, the matriarch of the novel, Baby Suggs, holy, followed by every black man, woman, and child who could make it through, took her great heart to the clearing, a wide open place cut deep in the woods, nobody knew for what, at the end of a path known only to deer and whoever cleared the land in the first place. In the heat of every Saturday afternoon, she sat in the clearing while the people waited among the trees. And after situating herself on a huge flat-sided rock, Baby Suggs bowed her head and prayed silently as the company watched from the trees. Toni Morrison writes that they would know she was ready when Baby Suggs physically put down her stick. And she does, and I'll, I'll paraphrase the rest. She, she says, let the children come. And the children rush to the center of, of the clearing, and she says, let your mothers hear you laugh. And so the children start to ring out with laughter, and then the adults look on, and they can't help but to smile. And then she says, let the grown men come. And the men walk to the center of the clearing, and she says, let your wives, let your wives see you dance. So the men start to, to dance and the ground beneath them starts to kind of come awake with the, with the thud of their feet. And then she, uh, she finally calls the woman to the center and she says, cry for the living and the dead, just cry. And the women let loose. And so the women are crying, and the men are dancing, and the children are laughing. And she says, it started that way. And then they kind of all get tangled up in each other until the women stop crying and begin to dance. And the men sit down and begin to cry. And the children dance, and the men laugh. And there's this beautiful kind of um, intergenerational embodied practice of spirituality until they, they all together collapse in the clearing breathing, panting, and it's into this silence that baby Suggs gives her sermon. She says, in this here place, we flesh, flesh that weeps, laughs, flesh that dances on bare feet and grass, love it, love it hard. Yonder, they do not love your flesh, they despise it. They don't love your eyes, they just as soon pick them out. No more do they love the skin on your back. Yonder they flay it, and oh, my people, they do not love your hands. Those they only use, tie, bind, chop off, and leave empty. Love your hands, love them. Raise them up, kiss them, touch others with them, pat them together, stroke them on your face, because they don't love that either. She says, this is flesh I'm talking about here. Flesh that needs to be loved feet that need to rest and dance, backs that need support, shoulders that need arms. 
She says, oh, yonder, hear me. They do not love your neck, unnoosed and straight. So love your neck. Put your hand on it, grace it, stroke it, and hold it up. And all your inside parts that they just as soon slot for hogs. You gotta love them. The dark, dark liver. Love it. The beat, beating heart. She says, this is the prize. What is at stake in a disembodied life? In recent years, there's been, you know, a notable increase in calls to pay attention to our bodies. I mean, especially if you're on social media, you see this a lot in, in wellness circles, among wellness influencers, and the, the vacuum that is self-care propaganda at the moment. Um, you, you know, we're hearing more often, listen to your body, rest, take care of yourself. The message valid and necessary, but the why and the how have become, in my opinion, cheapened by a society which, which equates caring for the body with like buying bath bombs and taking luxury vacations. So there's nothing wrong with those things. But I, I begin at the site of the clearing because I wanna be clear. When I speak about reclaiming the body tonight, I don't just mean going to Pilates and brunch on Saturday mornings, nor do I mean a, a diluted form of attunement that's more about numbing and covering up the cry of the body than it is about listening to it. I'm talking the raw, earthy, desperate, deeply enfleshed dignity of our bodies and of the world around us. The clearing that Morrison has offered up to us in Beloved reminds us that to survive, we must locate a spirituality that has just as much to do with the corporeal as it does with one's interior life. This is my belief. The physical is the spiritual. They cannot be divorced from one another. And, and any perceived disconnect, I think, is society's doing a strategic reprogramming. Our society, you know, rife with exhaustion, enslaved by capitalism, addicted to technology, ill-equipped to deal, to, to care for the traumatized, is perpetually training us toward a different path. And you know, we, could, we can blame this all on, on technology and social media, and you know, I could, I could talk, I could give a whole separate talk on why that's a worthy place to place some blame, but that's, that's not all of it. We've been receiving endless cues of, of bodily neglect from the time, hatred of the body, since, since we were little, you know? Rub some dirt in it, mind over matter, and maybe worst, in my opinion, never give up. I think it's the worst because never give up, it, it's perceived as, this, as, as a message of such integrity when I think the reality is we've all known what it is to give far too much, to, 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 to ask far too much of our bodies. And, and when we do, it's not the voice of, of tenderness and self-compassion that rises to meet us, but instead it's these you know, trite mantras, these violent mantras, really, in the end, for they, they communicate that it's better, that it's more honorable to forget our bodies, usually so that we can produce more for a society that does not care for them.
but it's better to forget our bodies than to listen to them, than to tend to them. If you, you know, hear a little else tonight, I, I, I want you to hear this. This is what I've been telling myself. If, if you aren't in your body, someone else is. Morrison writes, love your neck. They don't love to see it unnoosed and straight, you know, with every call to love in that sermon, with every call to love the flesh. She reminds us of what's lurking beyond the clearing, a world that does not care for black bodies, for disabled bodies, for bodies disinterested and being ground up and, and spit out and sacrificed on the altar of, of brute capitalism. The call to stay in your body begins to, to feel a little more urgent when you realize that to be absent from the body is not like departing to leave the body alone in some quiet corner. I, I, I no longer think that. If you aren't in your body, someone else is. It's not a void, it's an open door. F for what? For, for you know, the hands of greed, for the, for the heart of capitalism, you know, the muscles of misogyny, the church, there are systems that have everything to gain from our disembodiment because emptied bodies are much easier to, to use. Now, some of you might have been jarred when I listed the church and, and as one of those systems. Some of you might have been thinking that should have been listed first. They, maybe you know what it is to expend your body for a church that, that asks for your sacrifice more than, than your care. When I was in college, I found myself on a trip to the Dominican Republic with a group of Christians. We rode in cattle trucks through miles of, of sugar cane to these um, tiny shanty villages called batays. And in each batay you would find a few dozen Haitian families, typically in indentured servitude, working in the, in the cane fields. They were tired, they were sun-weathered, they were hungry, they had little access to, to medical care because most of them were undocumented. And so naturally, a group of 30-some Christians, you know, show up to sing songs and hand out Bibles door to door. So it's night three of this trip. And we were, we're back at the compound and um, the compound where we were living and, and having dinner. And I find myself at, at, a, at a dinner table with one of the main leaders of of this trip and you know fried plantains and, and chicken and rice and these these um, vats of fresh lemonade around us and I'm feeling this I'm looking down at the table and I'm feeling this tension in myself when a girl who's braver than, than I was she, she looks up and she says it, it feels cruel she said to the man she said it feels cruel to knock on a tin door and to only bring a Bible and nothing real. And maybe her choice of words was wrong. I mean, the nothing real, some of us might 
you know, be rightfully disturbed by that. But I think anyone with, with compassion can hear the words behind the words that she was saying. But this leader, he looks up and he just says, nothing is realer than the soul. Nothing is realer than the soul, which, you know, the, the irony being that the one thing he says is most real is the one thing which, if I would have asked him right then and there, he would have been unable to define. Yet, it was outside of the bounds of his imagination that the soul might actually be enfleshed. I, I, I hated that trip, and I, and I hate the, the brand of Christian formation that bore it. I find it fascinating that for a faith that in its own holy text puts so much emphasis on the body that many of us are trained to neglect it. These are the stories that hold together the, the Christian traditions. These are the stories. A God who walks in the garden with his creation. The fall of humanity um, leading to shame's, en shame, shame's entrance into the world at the sight of the bodies of Adam and Eve. You know, we have, if you belong to a Eucharistic tradition, take, eat, drink, you know, this is my body, this ritual of embodied remembrance. And then we have the, the incarnation, God born into a body at Christmas. God, God you know, we could, we could just stay here for a moment. If you are someone who believes the story of Mary as the mother of the Christ you know, how much meaning can we derive from this? God put, what we're saying, what you believe, is that God put his, his faith in a woman's body. That God entrusted himself to a physical womb, nine months in the body. That God drank from the breast of, of, of creation. This is, this is the, the story of the Christian faith. It beats blood, right? And, and yet, many Christians have been trained in a disembodied faith, or at least a faith whose loudest demand seems to be to sacrifice one's body. How, how many times have you heard, heard this, you know? Especially around times like this, we're in the Lenten season. Um, if you're someone who observes that, we're, we're looking toward Easter. How many times have you heard, you know, God endured so much on the cross, God gave, Christ gave everything, endured so much violence. What will you give? You know, have you heard, have you heard pastors say that from the altar? Will you, will you sacrifice? What will you sacrifice? Um, you know, very, very sinister, a very sinister portal. As if to say, because Christ endured the violence, endured violence in, in the body, that our ambition should be to, to mirror and survive that terror ourselves. We're taught to sacrifice our bodies for the sake of God far more than we are taught to lie down by still waters, to eat and rest in the valley of the shadow of death. We've erected a delusion that the, that the important things are the invisible things. And our task is to resist this formation, to, to resist and take hold of the inherent beauty and dignity of the physical. 
though it's not an easy task in a traumatized world. So I want to talk about trauma in the body. You know, what of our disembodiment is the product of things that were done to us? There are times when to leave the body can feel necessary to one's survival. What do, what do we do with this? Okay, so, so a lot of research has been done about, about the body and trauma. You know, we've learned how shame literally can, can rest on a person's body and change their posture over time, you know, we've, as well as habits toward bodily neglect. And we've long interrogated the, the biological response of dissociating from the body in the immediacy of trauma. But more and more research is, is being released on the long-term effects, the even inherited effects of traumatic experiences on a person's body. I want to share two quotes with you. The first from a psychologist and author of a very popular book called The Body Keeps the Score, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, writes this. Traumatized people chronically feel unsafe inside their bodies. The past is alive in the form of gnawing interior discomfort. Their bodies are constantly bombarded by visceral warning signs, and in an attempt to control these processes, they often become expert at ignoring their gut feelings and numbing awareness of what is being played out. They learn to hide from themselves. And Gabor Mate, who's a Hungarian physician and, and author, um, he just released a book called The, the Myth of Normal, I believe. Um, he, he writes, in the absence of relief, a young person's natural response, their only response really, is to repress and disconnect from the feeling states associated with suffering. One no longer knows one's body. Oddly, this self-estrangement can show up later in life in the form of an apparent strength, such as my ability to perform at, high, at a high level when hungry or stressed or fatigued, pushing on without awareness of my need for pause, nutrition, or rest. Trauma, in all its forms, trains us toward disembodiment, dissociation, right? And, and in the immediacy of trauma, you know, I try to see this compassionately, in the immediacy of trauma, this is actually a biological mercy, right? There are times where, as I said, leaving the body is a kind of salvation, a way for the body to distance itself from whatever present terror. But our responsibility is to not become overly familiar with a disembodied existence, because habitual disembodiment is not a mercy. It's a, it's a prison. Now, this research on, on trauma in the body has begun to extend into research concerning racial trauma, and, and I'll, I'll, I'm going to focus on this particular form of trauma for our purposes tonight. What are the stories we inherit? There's a, a Vietnamese poet and author named Ocean Vuong. Um, he has this beautiful line in, in, in his novel where he says, I'm writing to you from inside a body that used to be yours, which is to say, I'm writing as a son. 
He's writing a letter to his mom in the book. He says, I'm writing to you from inside a body that used to be yours, which is to say, I'm writing as a son, which I, which I think is such a tender way to communicate that our bodies are a site of intergenerational story, of intergenerational trauma and healing. And how do the stories we inherit live in the body today? Now, as a, as a black woman in America, I'm sure you can, I, I'm sure you can understand why, why such a question is vital for me today. I have inherited a story of grave violence against the black body, perpetual neglect and dismissal and alienation of the black body throughout American history. And from the time I was a little girl, I learned to divorce myself from my body. I learned to try to transcend my blackness or, or leave it behind as a, as a form of survival in spaces where I was not welcome. Uh, and by the way, this, this isn't unique to me. For many people of color, um, many marginalized people, uh, we have had to forget our bodies because to remember them is to subject yourself to the daily violence that the world heaps on us and their actions, beliefs, policies, language. This is from a, a book called The Book Between the World and Me, a scholar named Ta-Nehisi Coates. He's writing to his son, and he says, but all our phrasing, race relations, racial chasm, racial justice, racial profiling, white privilege, even white supremacy, serves to obscure that racism is a visceral experience, that it dislodges brains, blocks airways, rips muscle, extracts organs, cracks bones, breaks teeth. You must never look away from this. He says, always, you must always remember that the sociology, the history, the economics, the graphs, the charts, the regressions, all land with great violence upon the body. And I'll say this, the work of service, of justice, of existing as marginalized people groups, it lands heavily on our bodies. Every time I have to say Black Lives Matter, it takes something from me. Because I was never meant to need to convince anyone of dignity in my own body. That's costly. And it was becoming honest about this that forced me to really contend with all the ways I'd learned to, to view my body by the world, all the ways others' experience of my body as enemy or inhuman has shaped me. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm always hesitant to invoke George Floyd's name in spaces like this because I worry that we're very quickly reducing his body to a symbol, and I think his name is wielded to feed all kinds of emotional emptiness, and I, I don't want to do that. But I, I want to talk about a, na a man named Donald Williams, Donald Williams testified in the trial against Derek Chauvin, Derek Chauvin being the man who murdered George Floyd. Donald Williams is the man, the witness, who studied his body, studied himself to stand up to the officers as the life drained from Floyd's body. So he is, takes the stand as a witness in the trial. 
in the defense, I mean, you can watch this, you, you can watch this anywhere. The defense attorneys, they spend a great deal of time attempting to imply that Williams was in the way, that he was adding to the confusion, that he was disrespecting the officers, whatever. And at one point, Donald Williams looks up from the stand and, and he just says, no, I stayed in my body. You can't paint me out to be some angry black man. I stayed in my body. And, and the room I was in, at least, just stopped. It's like everyone stood still. I stayed in my body. Terrible and beautiful defiance. Refusing to be reduced in protection of another man. I stayed in my body. In a world where we, where we are forced to march to the rallying cry of I can't breathe, when we are forced to, to hear black people cry out for their makers and their moms with their last words being, I can't breathe, what does it mean to reclaim our breath, to reclaim our bodies, right? It's not just wellness, self-help fluff. This is profound resistance, liberation for, for those of us whose collective breath has been stolen, you know, whose, whose bodies have been degraded, when I pause to, you know, I, I practice breath prayer at home. When, when I pause to practice breath prayer as a, as a contemplative practice, it's a sacred reclamation. You know, it's a reminder that my breath is worthy to be nurtured, listened to, that it carries a wisdom. And when I breathe, I breathe for me and my grandma and my great-great-grandmother. And when I listen to my body and I lie down to rest in the middle of the day, I do so for my ancestors who couldn't, who didn't have agency in their bodies. Now, this is the last thing I'll say about this, but I have a, I have a strong suspicion that, that much of the resistance to embodied spirituality in white-dominated Christian spaces is born of a deep shame of the brutalities that white bodies have wrought. This is what I believe. I think whiteness knows on some plane of the soul what it has done to bodies like mine throughout history. And to attune to the physical is to become present to the very physical terrors we and our ancestors have enacted. So what I mean to say is our relationship to our bodies, to our own faces, is a story that stretches back long before we were born. And, and, and it's costly. But, but it's necessary. I don't know if you've, if you've ever like tripped along the sidewalk or you know, got injured during a game, burned yourself in the kitchen, and maybe you've had the experience where you know, it's not until you look down at the scrape or the burn and, and you actually see it that you begin to feel the pain, that you like, can feel where it hurts. This attunement to our physical selves is often what helps us point to where it hurts, to sense things about our bodies and its needs that we wouldn't ordinarily sense. And time and time again, I'm reminded that this fidelity to the body is not extraneous to the spiritual life, but it's central, it's primary. Okay, this, this is what I haven't told you. I was... 26 when I became sick. Okay, it started with something like the flu, and then 
My shoulder, my left shoulder began to hurt, then my left arm, then my right arm. Then all of a sudden my hands weren't working together like they, they typically do. Then my cervical spine, and you know, all of a sudden one day you look up and my husband is feeding me and tying my shoes for me in secret. And I was left to occupy a body that felt like a stranger to me. So at its worst, I, I write about this in, in, in the book, This Year of Flesh. At its worst, I was pretty much in bed for um, a year. I had a flexible job, so I'd go and I'd go to a meeting, and I'd come home and I'd get back in bed, and I'd go to a meeting, I'd come back, I'd, I'd eat in bed, read, and, and mostly I would just lie there, you know, st still as ice, trying not to disturb anything, aggravate anything. But in a time when my body needed compassion and patience and tenderness, I did precisely the same thing the world does to black bodies, disabled bodies. You know, I, I turned against it. I thought, if I can't have dignity in my body, I'll at least have it in my mind. So I started to read nonstop and you know, watch documentaries. And at that point, there were you know, very little answers about what was happening to my body. I was being pro poked and prodded and like electrocuted, spinal taps, um, swallow tests. Uh, neurologists and, and rheumatologists were, were doing, you know, running test after test. And in the absence of answers and in the confines of a body that didn't feel like my own, I tried to escape it. So, you know, traumatized people feel chronically unsafe inside their bodies. I didn't, I didn't just feel unsafe, I was terrified. I was, I was losing a life, you know, I was, I was terrified. And I turned that terror against the body. In her book, The Body is Not an Apology, Sonia Renee Taylor writes, body terrorism is a hideous tower whose primary support beam is the belief that there is a hierarchy of bodies. And we uphold the system by internalizing this hierarchy and using it to situate our own value and worth in this world. She also writes, living in a society structured to profit from our self-hatred creates a dynamic in which we are so terrified of being ourselves that we adopt terror-based ways of being in our bodies. So, so I, I mean, I adopted a terror-based way of occupying my body. And along the way, I realized that I had been neglecting the physical long before I became sick. You know, as, as a black woman, I escaped my body to avoid the, world, uh, the violence of a world bent on anti-blackness. You know, uh, as a child who felt a profound sense of loneliness, I, I left my body to survive my rejection of it. And, and that distance from my body in that season it became hatred. So fast forward, about a year, and I'm, I'm at the Cleveland Clinic. I'm being released from the Cleveland Clinic, and some of you will know the Cleveland Clinic is where you go and doctors call you a mystery. And so I'm at the Cleveland Clinic with this team of doctors kind of just scratching their heads, trying to figure out 
why these different, you know, parts of my body were deteriorating. And uh, I was released the day before my husband and I were meant to go to Paris. We'd planned this trip to, to Paris months prior, and we assumed we wouldn't be able to go. We were released at the last second, and we thought, you know, who knows, who knows where we'll be in a year's time. Like, let's go to Paris now while you can. As, I, as we travel, unfortunately, my, my you know, state begins to deteriorate, and it was the first time I began you know, having serious symptoms in my lower extremities. And so I was having trouble walking without a lot of pain, and it got to a point where I needed to use a wheelchair to get around, which is you know, not conducive to the cobbled stone <laughs> streets in Paris where we were staying. So I, I ended up spending you know, about three days of that trip in bed in, in, in the Airbnb. I kept saying, you know, I came to Paris to lie in someone else's bed. And one of those mornings, a particular kind of desperation kind of came over me. It was, you know, a particular kind of fear. And my husband was out getting espressos and, and croissants. And, and I began to pray out loud. Now, you don't know me, so you, so you don't know how odd that is for the person I am. But I'm, I'm not someone who, you know, tends to pray out loud. I'm not someone who really prays organically at all. If I, if I pray, it's, you know, liturgical, it's pre-written and structured. Um, but again, it was, it was a different kind of desperation that morning, and I found myself just, like, pleading with this cosmic force. And I was speaking out loud, and something about hearing my interior world out loud and the, the vitriol with which I spoke about my physical self, like it, it, was, it was almost inescapable because it was audible. I couldn't escape hearing how my, how my, interior, how my interior world had turned against the physical. I mean, I, the, 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 the pleading prayer was just riddled with expletives, you know? God, if you take these expletive hands from me, these, these legs, you know... Um, and I really heard, heard, heard myself. And I felt myself kind of jolt up in protection of myself from myself. And I just stopped, like mid-sentence. I don't even remember what I was saying. I just stopped. And I began to pass the peace around my body. Oh, if, you, if you don't know the... Um, liturgical practice of passing the peace, I mean... It, it happens uh, in, in Catholic liturgy and Anglican liturgy and other liturgies as well, but it's a, it's a place where, you know, you, you turn to the person next to you in the pew and you say, peace, you shake their hand, peace, peace. And it's kind of it's been, you know, diluted as just like this greeting, a way to say hi to your neighbor. But actually, its placement in the liturgy is, is quite intentional. Its purpose in the liturgy has intention, beautiful intention. And so it's a remark of of reconciliation, of repair with your neighbor before everyone um, approaches the altar to receive you know, the liberation of the Eucharist together. Before you come together to receive the Eucharist, you have this moment of repair with the people. It's a way to say, you know, I'm right by you, you're right by me, peace, peace. Okay, so I began to pass the peace around my body. Now in hindsight, this sounds 
very poetic, you know, very romantic and beautiful. But in the moment, you know, the, the, the beauty in it for me is that it wasn't this cognitive decision. This co- I, I didn't think to myself, oh, you know, there's this ancient practice of passing the peace. Maybe try that with your body. I, did, I, didn't, I didn't, the thought didn't occur to me. It was almost a bodily instinct from years of, of, of doing so in the church, a bodily instinct. I, I started to do it before I understood why I was doing it. And, and that was the beauty in it for me. But I began to travel around these sites of my body that it held, you know, so much shame and so, and so much neglect. Remember flexing my hands and saying peace and wiggling my toes, peace. I, I was beginning to have the beginnings of my eye problems, which I write about in the book. But I remember placing my, putting my eyelashes against the backside of my hand, saying peace. And I just continued like that, traveling around these different, you know, aches and pains in my body and this practice of what I now know was repair. And I wasn't healed. You know, actually things got worse. And still, I've known no greater reconciliation to date. Reconciliation with my own flesh. And it's not to say, you know, I don't waver I mean, there are days that take you to places, and I've had to become really honest about why having a consensus about what's happening to my body is important to me. I've had to face, you know, the real limitations of human genius, you know. Medicine is so young, you know, and so I've had to exist in in the mystery of my body and still believe in its dignity. And, And that bodily attunement, that takes you to places, what you desire, you learn what you fear, right? I'm not afraid of going blind. I'm afraid of being made obsolete. It takes you to places. But this is my commitment. I will not abandon my body. I have a responsibility to remain. We have a responsibility to remain in our bodies in all their mystery, their pain, their alienation. What would it mean to stay close to yourself? I, I want to close by, by reading a, a poem. Uh, it's, it's, it's a poem that's become a bit of a ritual for me whenever I find myself drifting too far from that bed in, in Paris. Um, it's timely for the season we're in, for the Lenten season, and as we look toward Easter. It's by a poet named Vivi Francis. It's called Like Jesus to the Crows, Like Jesus to the Crows that gathered there along his arms, upon the invitation of a slender limb, and not oblivious to human violence, perhaps needed rest, or needed to offer the shelter of presence, despite the stiff collar of their feathers, despite each one being no less the children of a father who claimed an upper realm. It is not true they pecked his eyes, nor did they consider his wounds their own. They were neither irreverent, nor quiet. They spoke in the tongues they knew. They cawed full-voiced and would have released him from his bindings had their beaks held the power and had there been time in that place. Like them, I've sought to comfort and so be comforted. Like them, I've seen the failure of miracles when they were most needed. 
Like him, I've called upon those so unlike myself when my father failed to answer. What does it mean to stay near to the body of the Christ? You know, to, to land on the enfleshed God, even when such presence doesn't ensure relief. We are tired. There are people, you know, some of whom are in this room who are in a pain in their bodies that they don't even have language for. There, there, there are some of us who wake daily with an interior fatigue that just feels relentless. The answer is not dislocation, but abiding presence. Stay near to yourselves, your whole selves. What is at stake in a disembodied life? You know, no less than our complete and collective liberation. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Cole, very much. Um, again, you'll have a chance to ask some questions either here in the room or, again, if you are watching virtually, you can in include a question on our live stream or the email once more is social at spdlc.org. Um, I'm going to let her rest her voice for a moment and just make a few announcements, beginning with the next event, which is indeed the final event of this 20th anniversary season. Um, if you're here in the house again and have a program, it, it will be featuring Michael Curry, who's the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church. That's on May 16th at 7 o'clock. If you have followed the series for a while, you'll know that Bishop Curry was uh, intended to be with us in person, speaking of the body, at the end of last season. Uh, and he was unable to make it uh, physically with us. He joined us virtually, um, but committed to come in person at the end of this season. So I hope you'll join us for that. If you would like us to remind you of those events, his and then, of course, future events, uh, sign up to our social media, or you can go to the Faith and, Li Faith and Life website and sign up for our email alerts. Um, so that's the first thing I want to say is please join us for that. As always, that'll be both live and uh, live streamed. <clears throat> um, and then I want to say a word of thanks to our sponsors. Again, I mentioned this is the 20th season of these events. Um, there are actually people here who I think have been with us from the very first season. From the beginning, it has not been a budget item of this congregation. Um, it has been supported entirely through the generosity of individuals and local corporations which make these events possible and make it possible for us to bring in wonderful speakers like Cole. Um, the sponsors are listed if they have given us permission to be listed in the, in the uh, program. I'll lift up our corporate sponsors which include Crossroads Financial Group, Cressa, Ulrich Real Estate Group, Mally Design, Augeo, Productivity Inc., Rapid Packaging, and Mastercraft Labels, um, and of course all of the individuals listed there. Many of you are uh, sponsors who are here tonight and online watching. Uh, will you join me in thanking all the people that make these possible? I also want to say a word of thanks to Jeff Elstad, uh, our guitarist who's been with us from the beginning. Jeff, thank you as always for your presence and your music. <laughs> and I forget, can you give me that magazine, Cole? Um, I forgot to bring up one of my 
uh, props here. One of the questions I get more than any other since the start of this series is, you know, where do you get ideas for speakers? I get ideas from lots of different people, lots of different places. One who has been um, a faithful uh, suggester of speakers is Amanda Berger, who's here in the house tonight. And in fact, Amanda is the one who uh, suggested that we bring Cole. So if you love this, please thank her. Um, and Amanda also happens to be the editor of our magazine, Inspire Magazine, which comes out quarterly. I believe this just arrived in our houses in the last week, correct, or so? Um, so some of you get this uh, in your mailboxes. If you don't and you'd like to pick one up, there are extra copies uh, in the atrium. You can also find it online at our website. I mention it, though, because this particular issue has an interview uh, with Cole. So uh, please look this up if you'd like. Um, and thank you again to Cole for your willingness to, uh, to do that. And uh, will you thank Amanda for the idea, by the way? <laughs> all right. Um, I think that's all I wanted to say. So questions. The first one's always the hardest. And Cole, you're going to have to come up to do this because I'm not going to answer the questions for you. <laughs> you sure? <laughs> Hi, Cole. Hi. Uh, thank you for a very powerful presentation. Um, as a physician, I'm dying to know, how long did it take you to recover from this horrible illness? You know, I'm, I'm still in the midst of it, um, and, it and it's ebbs and, flowed, it's ebbs and floats uh, throughout the years. I've received very little, very little clarity about what's happened. I've had conflicting, many conflicting diagnoses. One doctor will say it's lupus, another doctor will say, no, it's not lupus, <laughs> you know. Um, so there's still a lot, a lot of, you know, mystery that, I, that I'm learning to live with. And thankfully, I'm, I'm in a place now where, you know, I, I have a lot more strength than I did a few years back. Good to hear. Thank you. Um, and can you talk a little bit about your black liturgies? Sure. Yeah, yeah. I didn't talk about black liturgies. So I began Black Liturgies in the summer of 2020, so it was, you know, a, a season that, that we all remember of a kind of global reckoning with um, anti-blackness and the death of many, many people, a cluster of death of many black people. And I, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm Episcopalian. I, I, I love the Book of Common Prayer. But I'll say that there are seasons when it's particularly difficult to pray words written by a white man. And, you know, after George Floyd's death, I found myself in one of those seasons where this liturgy, you know, for all its beauty, felt like it, you know, wasn't, wasn't quite able to approach black grief, you know, um, black emotion with the particularity that I was craving. And so I thought, you know, the idea came quickly, and it was implemented quickly. I turned to my husband one night in bed, and I said, I think I'm going to start something called Black Liturgies, and I'm just going to connect black literature, the black body, black emotion with written prayer. And the next day I did. I started it. And I started it anonymously because, you know, I needed that in order to be brave. And uh, a few weeks in, I decided to show my face and... So here we are, and what I what I do is, is a very you know minor form of liturgy. I uh, usually connect some kind of 
poem or quotation from a black thinker or artist, and I'll connect that with a written prayer and typically a breath prayer, an inhale, exhale, kind of um, on different phrases that, that people can practice. Yeah. Thanks for asking about black liturgies. Yeah, and it's grown. Turns out there's, I thought it would be like a dozen of us, you know. I'm like, surely there's probably like a dozen of us who are interested in liturgy and black liberation, you know. And I quickly found that, it, you know, it's much more than that. So, yeah. Okay, I have um, a quasi-formulated uh, question here about, and I guess I'm going to, this is one that, that someone has sent in. Um, we were talking about Augustine before your talk, St. Augustine, and it, I guess I'm going to formulate this question by saying there are strands of Christianity, it's 2,000 years old, that definitely move toward a separation of body and soul, and Augustine, maybe particularly with his emphasis on Plato is maybe responsible for some of that. But could you say a little bit about both sides of that coin? In other words, um, parts of the Christian tradition that have tended to separate body and soul, and then parts of the Christian tradition that have done a better job of keeping them integrated. Is that fair? Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll try. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try. It's a big question. Um, but yeah, and. and I don't, I, don't, I don't blame, I don't hold animosity toward Augustine, you know, I'm a fan, brilliant guy, brilliant storyteller, um, hard read, <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think, I, I have a lot of compassion, so, I mean, you've explained it throughout history, there have been these strains of kind of um, either viewing the body as kind of the, the core source of sin, um, strains that just uh, view a, a disconnect from the body or, you know, the soul being purely this in, invisible thing um, and to deny the body is to somehow become closer to God. You know, I have compassion on, on all these strands of thought. I think, you know, there, there, there are reasons for each of them. And I'm, I'm 32 years old and I'm not quick to, you know, um, completely re reject anyone's theology at, at age 32. But I'll just say... That you know the 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 patterns and the strains, um, you know, do not often, do not always consider. I think the most vulnerable, and do not always consider the very tangible needs of Earth, and I think of of life on Earth in a physical body. And so you know, we could talk, we can talk about heaven being some, you know, place in the clouds. And, you know, we, we could talk that. If that's your theology, it's not my theology. If that's your theology, I respect it. But how does that translate to the people that don't have a place to sleep tonight? You know, is that really a, is that really a, a, sincere, um, a sincere entrance into a Christian faith, a promise of a someday kind of heaven you know, I, I can just speak for myself. I need a God who speaks to the, to the current, present, very real physical injustices of the day. I don't want to escape them because it's not possible for me to escape them. There's nowhere I can go. And so I need a God who can approach that and doesn't, you know, yeah, and who's trying to restore the embodied dignity as opposed to kind of escape it. That's, that's, that's my belief, at least. Hello. Um, 
From my understanding, you talked a little bit about how um, the institution of the church sometimes enabled this disembodied behavior. How could the institution work um, to reframe that um, train of thought and work for more spiritual embodiment? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, you know, when I first started to attend Episcopal church services, I found them just so exhausting. <laughs> it you know, I was used to attending, you know, non-denominational at that point, and even some Presbyterian churches, you know, a, a Anglican and, and Catholic tradition. There's so much theater that I actually find really beautiful. There's so many demands on the body, and you know, you stand, you sit. There are these. There's incense. You're smelling. It's the sensory. Of course, you receive the Eucharist, um, typically uh, weekly. Um, there, there are these sounds. I mean, the colors that that we wear in a, in a in a service. The the color of the. I'm forgetting the name of the thing that priests wear. The stole. Yeah, the, the, the colors of the stoles changes, the, the color of the setting changes depending on the, the seating. And it was exhausting, you know, the kneeling, the standing, the sitting, the turning and facing the cross. And, but what it, what it did for me, what, what, I, what I needed desperately was um, a service, was a, was a form for connecting with the divine that actually did involve my body and did involve the sensory. And, and that kind of taxing feeling I felt was because my ability to engage my body in spiritual spaces was so atrophied. You know, I was used to just checking out and just listening to a, a, a pastor give a talk for 45 minutes, and that was church, as opposed to these movements and these smells and these sounds. So, I, I mean, yeah, I'll say that, that there are ways there are ways to incorporate the sensory and the physical into our services, into our liturgies, whatever your tradition may be. It doesn't need to be you know, Episcopalian. Whatever your tradition may be, I think there are ways that we can expand our imagination to think, how do we pull in the senses to this? You know, can we make the bread of the Eucharist taste a little, you know, taste good? <laughs> What's the wine tasting like? Um, what are the smells present? And to, and to consider this... Um, yeah, I'll also say outside of, you know, the, a service, a, a Sunday service or rite, you know, churches, I'm, I'm going to speak to women for a second because we know now that women hold together, you know, most religious spaces, it's, it's on, it happens, occurs on, on the backs of women. This is just reality. <laughs> in any denomination, women are behind the scenes, usually you know, behind the curtain, organizing, creating small groups, creating the ideas, volunteering, cooking meals, you know, um, making sure there's hand sanitizer in the back. I guarantee a woman did that. <laughs> but, but, but my point is, women, I think, um, and, and everyone in general, but, but specifically women, I think we, we need to really interrogate the ways that we use uh, women in the church and the way we use the labor of women, the free labor of women to the point of exhaustion, to the point of burnout, you know? And what are we offering tangibly to care for the people that are expending themselves? I mean, in college, the things that we would do for our campus ministry fellowship, I barely went, I barely paid attention in class because I was so concerned with the life of, of the ministry I was a part of. What does it mean to kind of call people um, toward themselves as opposed to just using them out of their, uh, using their generosity to 
keep, keep, the, keep the church afloat. So I, th I think we have to ask some real questions about that as well and, and, and attune to the needs of the people in the church, the particular needs of the people in the church that are giving and giving and giving. Yeah. <clears throat> Take your time. Hi, Cole. Uh, first, I want to say thank you. Um, as a black woman, uh, a black woman who grew up in predominantly white spaces, who experienced 2020 and encountered your litur liturgies in 2020 when it first started, um, and then would proceed to go through the two hardest years of my life. Um, there are ways that you helped me connect back to my body to appreciate the things that she has endured um, the ways that she's resilient, and you taught me how to do breath prayers, and they have actually become such a part of my life to the point I actually recorded one for my church today. Um, so thank you, and I wanted to give you those flowers publicly. Thank you. It's important that you know that, that that is the impact that you're having um, on women who look like you. Uh, and then secondarily, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is that one of the ways I believe that my body is a revolution and that I am a revolution is to choose joy yeah. in the midst of all of the turmoil and in embodying this skin, mm -hmm. in wearing this skin and all of the violence that's done against it. And so I wanted to ask you, would you mind sharing with us a recent moment of joy? Yes, what a beautiful question, yeah. My friends and I, we've been talking about this lately, you know, this, this, you know, there's a lot of talk about inheriting the trauma of mm. people that came before us and, and trauma in the body. And we've been reminding ourselves that just as we inherit, you know, the trauma, we also inherit the joy, the resistance, you know, the pattern, the modes of healing and coping. And so, yeah, I, I'm not, a, I talk about this in my book, I'm not a, I'm not a naturally happy person. I'm working on this. Um, <laughs> I'm a cynic, and I, I tend to live my life in, in, in sadness. So I have to surround myself very intentionally with people who have a, a real possession of their self, a real possession of their own joy. Um, and and, and for, for me, I found my easiest entrance, because I'm not a particularly like happy or um, energetic person, my, my entrance to joy tends to occur through beauty. Um, in a, in a kind of attention to, to, to the beautiful, a, a practice of wonder and awe. I feel a tremendous amount of joy, and it's not always excitable, but um, it's calm, and it's a kind of content, a contented joy. So um, I live in a, a very old house. It was built in 1839, something like that. Very old, very beautiful brick house it comes with all kinds of problems and beauties but um we have a, a barn on our property and you know the the barn swallows are beginning to return it's wild the ladybugs and the barn swallows they come at once this early for us maybe because we've had a tame winter but but the other day i was just sitting at our dining room table just listening you know listening to the birds chirp they have beautiful you know arcs and dips and dives and, and this beautiful dance of the barn swallows in, in the clearing next to my house. But, you know, th that's just one example. But 
I think I experience a kind of joy in that, in that fidelity to the, the beauty in a very mundane moment. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Cole, over here. Oh. Hi. Hi. Uh, thanks for sharing so vulnerably and courageously. And uh, I just wanted to um, understand a little bit better. You said if you're not in your body, someone else is in it. And I think you talked about some various systems, one of them being the church. I think I understand what you mean by that. Um, when you say capitalism, are you talking more about like consumerism, the, yeah. the, the um, drive for for wealth. Um, mm -hmm. Can you share a little more about that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's good clarification. Um, and it speaks to kind of the circles I'm in that, that I didn't spe speak that so clearly. But um, yeah, when I, when I say capitalism being one of those systems that kind of occupies the body, I mean, um, you know, obviously I don't think all capitalism is bad. Well, maybe that's not obvious. But I, but I mean a form of being that is, that is hyper-focused on productivity, on utility, on a given output, that involves consumption, sure, but I think capitalism, you know, when we're most honest, I think we can, we can admit that it contributes to this, this view, this vision of humanity as machines, as machines that are, that are, that are dedicated to um, often someone else, to achieve someone else's uh, wealth and success sometimes achieve, achieve our own wealth. But when I say capitalism is one of the systems that can occupy the body, I, I'm, I'm asking the question of, you know, when I'm not present, what are the ways I just give myself over to these systems that say work, work, do, do, make money, you know, start a business, grind. There's this phrase, and, and like young people will say, just, you gotta grind. Um, and what does it mean to resist that and, and, and actually know that there, there's a, a time and place for work and a time to release, release ourselves and enter um, a, a deeper rest? Thanks for that question. I don't know if I answered that, that, yeah. that well. Yeah. Hi, Cole. Hi. Um, thank you for your words and your vulnerability. Um, I've followed Black Liturgies for the past year. Um, and I'm a social worker, and in this community in the Twin Cities, your words are uh, circulating <laughs> and important and helping us as we help others heal, so thank you. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm curious what practices you have on the daily to help bring yourself back to your body, both spiritually and emotionally. Yeah, thanks for your question. Um, this isn't something that most people can practice, so I always feel a bit you know, bad mentioning it. I'm certainly privileged in this way, but I start every morning in silence. Um, it started as a half hour, but now it's closer to 45 minutes, an hour of silence. I don't speak, you know? This is like people who have kids right now are like, are you kidding? <laughs> I can't do this. Um, I, I, again, I understand the privilege in that, but for me, um, I, I was a very quiet child, very close to my own interior world, and um, I find myself getting drawn in social settings. I, I, I get drawn out of myself very easily, out of my own emotions. Even how I communicate will change in the presence of other people. I'm working on more you know, solidity of self, but it's difficult. And that silence in the morning, 
I think gives me a chance to, gr to ground myself and, you know, who, who are you, Cole? Like, it, it, to think of Howard Thurman's Sound of the Genuine, you know, who are you? You have to find out what your name is. <laughs> like, every morning I have to kind of remember that. How do you speak, Cole? <laughs> you know? And, and so that's one thing. I do practice breath prayer because I, um, I mean, I used to dance, and I, I can't really exert myself in that way since my, my, my body has changed. Um, but breath prayer, I think, is very accessible and to, to pay attention and, and almost, you know, even when my breath is short, to pay attention to that. If my breath feels shallow and, 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 um, and quick, to pay attention to that. But I think breath, breath prayer, breath work is a very accessible form of paying attention to the body for people who are disabled, people who have a lot of pain. You know, it doesn't always need to look like yoga and, you know, and, and, and Pilates to tune to your body. Sometimes you can just breathe and listen. So I do that. Okay, I think uh, if no one else has any questions here, you're welcome to after I ask this, but I'm gonna assume this will be the last question uh, which comes from online and it's related to your book, Cole, uh, where you write about a lot of um, ancestors, a lot of relatives, but this question's particularly about your father who this, uh, questioner found uh, compelling. And so could we end with a word about your father who strikes us, this guy, as a uh, particularly compelling and interesting character? Would you like to say a word about him? Um, yes, my father is amazing. <laughs> um, he's, a, he, he's a complicated, a complicated man um, who ha certainly has his vices and um, but he is a, he's a hustler. He's a hustler. I, I don't love that word, but he is, you know, from the time he was a child. He grew up in, in, in the Bronx and in, in Manhattan. He was working. He's been working since, he's, since he was eight, you know, from shoveling snow to working in, you know, uh, dry cleaners at night. And he's, he's a single father, teen dad, and always, you know, found a way. He's not an intellectual doesn't read, right, doesn't, doesn't write, and yet found a way to pay attention to a very quiet, strange little girl <laughs> of his and found a way to translate her life into the life of the family, which my family is very charismatic, you know, very energetic, and I was just this shy, awkward thing. So my father is, the, is, is really the, the reason why I started to write. He began having us, you know, me and, and my siblings write little poems and stories, and he found a way to help me connect with the world, a, a way to express myself in a time where I wasn't incredibly verbal. And so I, I, I owe everything to him. I owe that book to him because I, I don't know if I would have found writing if, if it wasn't for some 19-year-old kid <laughs> dad who was, you know, giving so much, but also paying attention to the little girls he was raising. So, yeah, love my father. What a simple question. That's a great question to end on. Yeah. Talk about your dad. I'd love to. <laughs> Don't applaud yet. Just a second. Um, well, we're glad that your father also encouraged you to write, and uh, thank you for this year, Flesh and Blessings, on your next book. We're also delighted you were able to join us. Thank you all for being with us tonight, whether you're here in person 
or if you joined us virtually, or if you're going to be listening to this in the days and weeks to come, we're grateful to have you along um, for this 99th event. And uh, I don't know if this is exactly what you're thinking about, but we've always, from the beginning, wanted to give our guests a tangible, physical uh, memento of their time with us. So we have a, gra a granite plaque here, Cole, that says, with thanks to Cole Arthur Riley for bringing faith to life. And we do thank you so very, very much. Thank you very much, yeah. Will you join me in thanking you?